Hey everyone, we are back this week with a brand new episode and uh, we talk a little bit about Torah portions. Actually, we spend the entire time talking about Torah portions, what that is, what that means, what we will be doing for the next few weeks. If you have any suggestions on topics or anything that you want to listen to us talk about or any questions, please shoot us an email, evangerbros at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at evangerbro, Instagram, evangerbros, and Facebook, evangerbros. So we look forward to getting back into this with you all and uh, just having these conversations. And if you can, leave us a review on iTunes. Five stars are always helpful and recommended. And that's about it. Also, um, as always, audio is a little bit weird, but hopefully next week we'll have everything figured out. All right, here we go. Hello, and welcome to Evanger Bros. I'm your co-host, George Benson. I'm your other co-host, Don Schieber. And this is your weekly podcast about discipleship, biblical literacy, and historical context. Now, Don, um, as, as brief a way as you can, can you give me a one-sentence oh, yeah, one description of what we mean when we say discipleship? Uh, I think the easiest way to say it is uh, attempting to align our belief and our behave. Okay. A brief sentence on biblical literacy and why that's important. Uh, evangelicalism uh, loves to claim uh, the Bible as being central, yet uh, only know a handful of verses of it. And so I believe the more we know of it, the more we are likely to shift from some of our behaviors and live into our beliefs a bit better. And a brief one sentence on historical context trying to understand uh, the text from a perspective of the first hearers as best we can. All right. Um, So hopefully what we'll be doing is helping stretch your thoughts a little bit on these subjects, maybe introduce some new ideas, some new practices, and just some things that you may not have known before. Uh, And so this is season 1.2, coming back from a couple week hiatus. Uh, So Don, what, what have you been up to the last few weeks? Uh, dreaming about getting started with the Avenger Bros 1.2. <laughs> no, I've been enjoying the summer quite a bit. Uh, spend time with my family and everything. But I have to say the last several weeks I've been itching to get back to hanging out with you and, and doing this podcast. So, uh, yeah. What about you? Well, I mean, aside from dreaming about getting back to doing this, I, my wife and I moved to Columbus, Ohio. So we're no longer in West Michigan. So that's pretty much taken up the last eight weeks. No bucks. No. 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 U of M always and forever, baby. Um, so that's pretty much been it. Uh, just we bought a house and have been working on that and just, yeah. So uh, this week. That's it? That's it. That is it. I mean, roof leaks and all that good stuff. 100-year-old house, everything that you can think of has been going on. So, But uh, for the next couple of weeks, something we're going to be shifting um, from what we did last season where we just kind of picked one topic and tried to stay on it for the entire episode, and it was different week to week. We're going to be uh, touching on the Torah portions. And, Don, this is uh, some, a reading style that you introduced to me. I was wondering if you could just talk about that for a second, what it is, how you – found it and um, kind of what's changed with you since you've been reading it? Well, most Christians are familiar at least with the concept of a lectionary. 
depending on you know, denomination and more high church uses a lectionary where there's a certain reading, usually from the Old Testament, the Gospels and the epistles um, each week. And then the teaching is pulled from that lectionary uh, every week. Well, there's been a lectionary of sorts that has existed since the since before the time of Jesus, and it went through the Torah. Now, it's debatable about whether or not uh, in Jesus' day or prior they went through the Torah in one year, or if they did it in three years. Um, but I tend to follow the one-year Torah cycle, and so basically every. Uh, Sabbath, every Shabbat, there is a Torah reading and a discussion on that text. And so this past week or this week, uh, depending on when you're listening to it, when we posted, uh, was the first week of the Torah portion. So it's Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 6-4. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that's what the portions are. Uh, it's a way to read through all of Torah in one year. Uh, it's it's a great thing that's really impacted me, uh, primarily because I was just, when I first started, I was had such an unfamiliarity of the text uh, and to be deliberately and intentionally engaging it week in and week out was really powerful. And then just doing it every year, uh, the uh, Torah has become much more significant in my understanding of my own faith and my own understanding of Jesus and Christendom. So. Great. Yeah. I mean, I remember when um, <clears throat> you introduced this reading cycle to me when we did our X study, you know, mm. six, seven years ago. And uh, it's something that is really, it's, it sounds like it's something that's a lot to take on, but when you realize that you're just trying to read through the first five books of the Bible in a year, yeah. it's not really that much. Yeah, it's still, it's several chapters, but it's several chapters over a week, which isn't that hard. And, but I think what's complicated for me is uh, someone who loves to dive in and dig deep. Um, man, we just spent like eight or nine weeks going through the Lord's Prayer at, uh, at my church. And, you know, this seems, it just feels so blazingly fast to go through six chapters in one week. And there's so much that I want to talk about each week. and you have to, you have to leave some, some, uh, what is it? Some stuff on the cutting floor, some yeah, uh, film on the cutting floor. So, yeah. Well, so, uh, this week we're going to be talking about the Genesis portions of this, um, because, you know, yeah. like I was saying, depending on, and we'll, we'll put in the show notes, uh, a link to the calendar that we're going off of. So whenever you listen to this, you can, if you want to read it, um, you know, or read it. Yeah, read ahead, and then if you have questions on something that you read, feel free to send them to us, um, and we'll, we'll just kind of go from there. So, Don, what part are we going to be talking about this week? Well, Genesis 1, 1 through 6, 4, I mean, just has so much good stuff in it, right? So you have the creation narrative, you have the second creation narrative, you have uh, what Christendom, uh, a lot of Christendom calls the fall in chapter 3, Uh and then chapter four, you have the uh, wonderful story of the love between two brothers and the killing of Abel by Cain. Uh, uh, and then chapter five, you have a genealogy of Noah. So I think for our listeners, uh, chapter five is easy to kind of chop out of that. Um, yeah. And so, uh, 
chapters one and two. Uh, you know, I don't want to get into a debate of young earth, old earth, gap theory, uh, evolution. So we're going to skip that. Uh, so I figured we would take the easiest route here, the, the one that's the most simple, and talk about the fall. Yeah, the road less traveled, as it were. Right. I mean, that rarely ever gets brought up. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, well, let's dive in. Yeah. I mean, well, let's first of all, George, I, I'd want to hear, like, how have you understood? And I realize that, you know, you and I have spent time in this text. And so uh, I know that your views on this have drastically changed. I, well, I perceive they have. Yeah. Um, so maybe, maybe you could share where you started with when when you heard the fall or you heard genesis 3 what was it that you used to perceive that this chapter was about well um i heard about the fall and my total depravity before i ever heard about genesis 3. Um, that's fair and so you know being somebody who has always dealt with a lot of issues of shame around my persons and in mm. my actions this you know it was like a meat hooks into my skin. You know, it was something that, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. I am worthless and horrible from the beginning. And so it makes sense that I continue to do these things that I don't like doing or, you know, it makes sense that this is why Jesus is here and why we need to honor God and, you know, constantly pray for forgiveness. Because if I die unrepentant in any way, I will go to hell. And it's just, you know, and this is where it all starts. Mm. And then I actually started reading the text um, and reading more uh, than the the great, air quote, great uh, theologians of our day who spend most of their time talking about total depravity and new Calvinism, what not so much what they have to say, but what others who came before them mm-hmm. have to say and think about it. Um, you know, this is one of those areas where when I started diving into uh, Jewish roots, it completely changed my outlook in life. Um, because that's not what you get if you actually read Genesis 3. Right. I mean, I think that, you, of course, you can make the argument for it, um, but if you're actually just reading it in the narrative, this is where conflict comes in. Mm-hmm. And this is a story. Like, th- this is still part of the poem of, of Genesis. And it really, you know, once I started actually diving into it all, it just, it, st- it stopped making sense in the context that I had always known it. Right. So the idea of total depravity uh, put way too succinctly uh, is this idea that we are sinful in our nature and therefore we sin. The complication with that is, is that when you repent, your sins are forgiven, but you still remain sinful. Um, And so you're always in this state of sinfulness. It's just that out of that sinfulness you sin. Now, Judaism, and again, blanket statement, is just like Christianity, Judaism has a a vast array of of ways of understanding things. 
but uh, an oversimplified, again, view of Judaism would be, as I, you know, uh, I had the opportunity to sit down with a, a Talmudic scholar uh, that used to attend, go to the same coffee shop I did, and he explained it to me as uh, Judaism says, you sin, therefore you're sinful. And when you repent, you are no longer sinful until you sin again. And that's a drastic difference between Christendom and Judaism, right? That Christianity leaves you in a sinful state, whereas Judaism returns you to a state of righteousness after repentance. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a huge difference within Christianity and Judaism. Uh, and to tip my hat a little bit, I'd say, uh, just so you know, as, as a listener, I, I now stand firmly in the camp of the Jewish thought on this. Uh, and I no longer hold to this idea of uh, being innately uh, sinful. Uh, and I have reasons for that, and I'm sure we'll touch on some of them uh, throughout this. But if you really want to hear more about that, you can go back and listen to, I think it was a two-part, is that correct, George? A two-part uh, discussion yeah. on sin. Yep. Um, and I'm pretty sure that uh, we go into this in much greater detail. And I just don't want to duplicate that, that teaching. Uh, so go back, check it out, uh, two-part two-parter on uh, our thoughts on sin and you're going to get a lot of that stuff there yeah so yeah um and it's kind of funny when when you sit down and you think about the the diametrically opposed viewpoints of some parts of christianity and what you were just describing it's the the jewish version of sin is what christianity claims to offer but doesn't actually um, work out and practice so much. Right. So George, where do you want to dive into this, uh, chapter? Uh, where do you want to, where do you want to start with this? Um, I mean, we can start right in the beginning. Why not? Right. Well, so I would recommend, you know, and, and again, some of this is going to be a little bit of a rehash of that sin, but I, I'd encourage you that, uh, those of you that have already listened to the sin podcast, um, don't bail on this one too quickly because you're feeling like it's a repeat. Um, because I, I'm, I'm going to go places in this discussion that I did not go in the, in the podcast when we talked about the garden, uh, then. So, uh, so stick with us. Um, but, but many of you might've heard this part, you know, if we start the last chapter or the last verse of chapter two, um, and I'm reading from the uh, Jewish Publication Society, uh, Tanakh, uh, it says, the two of them were naked, the man and his wife, yet they felt no shame. And that's a really important verse to me because prior, immediately prior to eating from the tree, uh, they didn't experience shame in their nakedness, right? So then they eat from the tree, uh, and we see that uh, in the beginning of chapter one. Uh, and then it says uh, in verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the garden at the breezy time of the day, and the man and his wife hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
And they hid because I would argue uh, in verse seven, it talks about their eyes being open. They perceived they were naked and they clothed themselves. And so this picture here is that uh, the very first thing that they determined in their understanding now that they were enlightened with the ability to differentiate between good and evil, the very first thing they did was see their nakedness and judge that they should feel shame for it. So this passage is, you know, we talk about this passage in connection with sin. And George, you touched on it when you described your understanding of original sin or total depravity of it's a shame fest, right? Um, and this is where I think we should really be focusing that they had this, I would argue that eating from the tree, and I, I don't hear people talk about this. They only talk about it in the scope of being, uh, oh, what do I want to say? Uh, being, um, uh, disobedient. That wasn't the word I wanted, but it works. Uh, being disobedient. And that's all that we focus on, right? But they ate from the tree, right? The text says, the, the serpent says, you know, God doesn't want you to eat from this tree because you'll become more like God. That sounds appealing. They eat from the tree and the text actually says at the end of chapter three that they're thrown out of the garden because they have indeed become more like God. And so here, I would argue that when they ate from the tree, it didn't end up the way they thought it would. Right? The very first thing of becoming more godlike was they felt shame, maybe for the first time ever. And I just think this has got to be a traumatic experience. I mean, this is trauma at its core, right? You eat from this tree expecting to be enlightened and become more like God. And instead, the result is you find yourself maybe the first time ever steeped in shame and hiding not only your body, but your entire body while God comes walking in. And instead, I imagine that prior to this, you know, the, I, the sound of God moving through the garden was probably full of joy and, and laughter and excitement. And instead, here, after eating from the tree, it's filled with shame and guilt and hiding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, what's funny is you were, you were talking about that. And the first thing that I started thinking about is, well, what does that say about God? Like the first thing that you feel when you become like God is shame. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an interesting question. Um, I think, you know, it's, you know, I, you know, but, I think we, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I don't want to jump too, too far because we'll probably talk about this in next week's portions, but we kind of see that manifested in the flood narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, very much. Uh, well, and we'll decide whether that's shame or something, but it's definitely an emotion that is uh, related closely. Yeah. So, so what do you think about this idea about approaching this from a perspective 
of this is trauma, right? And that this passage is about shame and about trauma. Yeah, I've never heard it uh, taught like that, um, but it makes sense. Um, or at least the trauma part, I've never heard uh, anything on that. But uh, so it definitely doesn't help that um, immediately they're, you know, tossed out. They're not immediately. No, tossed I mean, out. not immediately tossed out. But that's that's where it ends up leading to. Like, but know, but here's this but this is this is my point, right? So what does what is God's response? God finds God's thing, God's creation that was very good, and He finds them in a setting of trauma. What does God do? He or God um, starts trying to figure out what happened. He or God is asking, you know, uh, what brought you to this? Did you eat the fruit? And then God punishes the snake or the serpent. So my spouse works for an organization, Equal Justice USA, and they have a program that they started um, in, I think it's in Newark, New Jersey where they actually uh, train uh, the police department on trauma response and how to deal with people in trauma and how, and the hope of this is that when you approach situations that are traumatic and you have, and you learn a skill set of engaging it from a perspective of trauma, you can deescalate the situation quickly and in a very healthy way. And that, that, that then becomes a justice that the people receive that are in the traumatic situation. They receive a justice that is restorative instead of a justice that's retributive, right? And many people, I would argue, much of Christendom that really clings, uh, you know, I think a lot of Christians just call chapter three the fall because that's just part of our vernacular. I don't know how much in practice, I think you alluded to this a little bit, that we actually hold to that. But uh, those that really hold to that with white knuckles, I would argue, also think of a very retributive justice of God. You know, they they really thrive in a God that is eye for an eye, retributive, uh, not eye for an eye understood through the lens of a rabbi, but eye for an eye uh, as a retributive justice. You did this, you smack me, I get to smack you back, right? That this is the idea. But I would argue, and I've argued for years, that the justice that we see in the Bible is about restoration not about retribution. And so I would argue that in this moment, God finds Adam and Eve, and they have just experienced something traumatic. They're filled with shame, guilt, fear, and God de-escalates it. How does God de-escalate it, George? By asking questions, getting to the root of what happened. And I then, think that's the beginning, but he does something very, God does something very specific. Um, he makes them better clothing. Okay. That I'm, takes away yeah. the shame. Yes. I was getting, right? I thought you were asking so, like, the, 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 uh, what led up to that. So, so God sees them, they're clothed in figs, fig leaves, right? 
Uh, and God's response to them is to actually make them better clothing. God doesn't say you shouldn't be ashamed. God doesn't say, how dare you feel ashamed about that? God instead actually clothes them better than what they were in order to address their shame and guilt. I think this is extraordinarily powerful. Yeah, I agree. Also, this is, I wonder what type of skin God used. Because it doesn't say it's animal skin or anything. It just says skin. It uh, says leather in most instances. Well, so, but I'm reading the NIV. So I'm just like, hey, I got a pile of skin over here. Let me just uh, whip something up for me. These are the, these are the failed ones that I made earlier in chapter well, you know, for, for me, I actually am at, like, you know, you can have the, the picture of God that God snaps God's fingers and there's clothing made and it's perfectly tailored uh, to suit that, the current fashion, right? Or, like, you could midrash this a little bit, and that when God sees the trauma, when God sees the shame that they feel, God sits down and he cuts out a pattern. God sits down and begins to sew the clothing. And God considers who they are and what they're ashamed about. And God provides the right clothing uh, to, to fit them to care for them, to help uh, set aside their shame. This is, to me, one of the most remarkable things about reading this passage is that God, God does not begin, um, God doesn't begin from a place of uh, anger, God first, address, I mean, there's consequences for what happened, right? So you mentioned being thrown out of the garden. Which um, I think is important that there's a difference between anger and consequences. And, you know, absolutely happen without anger from time to time. And, you know, we also, um, something I didn't notice, I don't know if we can talk about this, but uh, Eve actually didn't get her name until after they were leaving the garden. Right. Yep. So, so in this picture, I just think it's so important that God's response is to, to create a garment for them, um, to clothe them, to, yeah, it, this, is, this is so beautiful to me because then chapter three, instead of it being a story about sin, it's a story about how God recognizes that humanity will always pursue uh, things outside of what are healthy and that it's going to cause trauma. It's going to cause uh, shame and guilt and that God's concern is to first address the shame and guilt, not the, not the, uh, not the finger wagging that we often hear. Yeah. So what are your thoughts so far? Oh, I think it's, I think it's good. Um, yeah, I don't know. The, the idea of God fashioning them clothing, uh, I think that that is a really beautiful image. And the de-escalation um, and 
trauma aspects of this that you've brought to it that I've never read or heard around this teaching makes sense. And more importantly, it um, creates compassion and what happened. Um, yeah. you know, this is a, a beautiful image of what, you know, I don't know if forgiveness is the right word, but reconciliation can start to look like because there's, here's what, so there's no actual separation between Adam, Eve, and God in this. What happens is they are told that they are to leave the garden. Adam Which is was, what they were always supposed to do. Yeah, Adam was never made in the garden. Adam was made outside of the garden and brought in to care for the land. And then told to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So they yeah. were always meant to leave. Yeah, and they just fat, or, uh, you know, cranked up the timeline on that. Right, so like I think, you know, as I believe what we discussed prior, is that, you know, that the tree of knowledge of good and evil would have been the graduation gift. It would have been the commissioning of them. So you think about Matthew and the great commission that at the time in which God felt that they had a grasp on how to live well in the ways of God, they would have then been uh, given the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is just my assertion. And they would have graduated and then they would have left the garden. And instead they're like, the typical adolescent who's like, I don't like the rules in this house. And I, I just, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I don't want to live under these rules anymore. And so God says, okay, then it's time to go. Um, you're out. But here's the thing. Unlike a lot of parents who do that to their child and wait for their child to come back begging to be let back in the home. What does God do? He helps them out. Are, yeah, he, yeah. God yeah. goes with them. It's the first exile that, that God demonstrates in the very first exile in the Bible. God doesn't stay in the place that people were exiled from and wait for them to return. God actually exiles God's self and goes with them. This is powerful. Yeah, I mean, I mean clearly. No, I was, just, I was just going to say, you know, one of the things that I think has been most powerful in the discussions around this early on um, with, with you for me has been when you pointed out that it wasn't so much that they gained the knowledge of good and evil. It's just, it's more that they replaced God as judge in this, because how do you judge? Mm -hmm. Well, you know what is good and you know what is evil, but right. What you think might be good or evil. I think as we've seen over the last couple of weeks with um, the Senate, Comfort or the uh, Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearings. Just evangelicals' participation in politics yes. in the 2016 election, we can see that we don't know what's good from evil. You can, whichever side of that you land on, you would think the other side is confused. So clearly, yeah. we don't know good from evil. Yeah, so, and there's no and there's no base for that. So when you get a bunch of knowledge without a context or base, that becomes very damaging very quickly yes yeah and this picture you know god says god doesn't throw them out of the garden because of what they did god says uh you know uh, let's see uh, verse 22 it says and the lord god said now that the man has 
has become like one of us. So they, they gained something. They didn't lose something. I have often heard that in the garden they lost something. But it says now that the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. What if he should stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever? So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to till the soil from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed and stationed east of the garden of Eden, the cherubim and the fiery ever turning sword to guard the way to the tree of life. I, I think that this is important for us to remember God threw them out of the garden so that they wouldn't eat from the tree of life. Now I would argue that this is merciful, right? That God doesn't want us to live forever in shame and guilt uh, because that's what comes from judging poorly. Think about all the times in your life, George, that you judged inaccurately or you judged poorly. And I would argue that in most of those instances, when we're honest with our lack of ability to judge well, it ends up in shame and guilt, whether it's because we, you know, uh, opposed something that we hold to morally or because we, uh, look down on someone that we judged inaccurately um, or we misjudged someone and gave them too much trust or something. And, uh, you know, and you, we, again, we can point to the 2016 election. I hope there's a lot of people that, uh, that judge poorly. Well, I don't know if I want to say, I hope they feel shame and guilt. That's not quite how I truly feel. Uh, so, but I think that when we, when we judge poorly, uh, that's where shame and guilt comes from. If we judge well, I don't think we feel shame and guilt out of that. I No, every time I've judged and it actually was correct, it was a, a sense of, not so much vindication, but just affirmation. Like I never, <laughs> but every other time where I'd say 90% of the time when I, <laughs> I try and judge something, it, it results in shame. Yeah. So now, now to me, the important thing about this going forward for how then does this impact us is the author, uh, whether it be Moses or someone else, depending what scholarship you read, right? Mm -hmm. The author began the relationship storytelling between God and humanity with this story. If you read it about the sinfulness of man, and how bad man is, or humanity is, you will read the rest of the Bible one way. Because it's setting the stage for what we think about God and what we think about humanity. And yeah. so if we think about humanity as fallen and uh, inherently wicked, and God as retributive and therefore kicks them out of the garden because they're unworthy now to be in the garden any longer, and so we lost our station as uh, being in the garden we lost our intimacy with god and so we were thrown out that if that is the way you begin reading the text if that's the the plot line that you have set up you're going to read the bible one way if you if you set the bible up and you read it from this perspective that uh, humanity made a mistake uh, and maybe it was out of greed, maybe it was out of just wrong motive. And God's first reaction to that is to address the trauma 
to assuage the guilt and shame, uh, hold them accountable, but then move them, remove them so they won't continue to live forever in that shame and guilt, and therefore read that as a merciful. And then God goes with them into the rest of the world. Um, and that's where you begin the story. And then that's the plot line of how God wants to forgive us. God wants to assuage our guilt and shame. And God wants to go with us. Well, that's going to also affect the way you read the Bible. Um, I'm convinced that the latter example is the way that we should be reading the text. Um, and I think that makes the Bible much more cohesive. The problem is, is that when we read the Bible uh, the first way, I shouldn't say the problem, but what we end up doing is saying that the God of the Old Testament behaves one way. And Jesus, thankfully, comes in and saves the day and changes the entire way that God interacts with the world. And I would argue, if we read the second way, Jesus is the natural progression of God's participation in the world. And it's not a 180. It's not Marcion. I was, I was just going to say that. And it's so, that is such a, the, that view of the God of the Old Testament being old or, you know, evil or different, or how you brought up Marcion, is what at one even though now that is something that is so prevalent at least i've found in some evangelical communities that don't understand that view was originally heretical right. has now become acceptable in mainstream and it drives me crazy yeah now i would definitely say and i think you'd agree with this george that in the same way that you know our understanding of scripture has evolved over the years the teaching of marcion has evolved over the years. Sure. Um, initially, Marcion said that they were actually two completely different gods. Yes. Whereas that's not taught today. But what is taught is that uh, they are that the God of the New Testament, and God of the Old Testament, are in conflict in some way. Uh, which, if if nothing else, at least smacks of Marcionism. Um, yes. It might not quite be up there to what Marcin taught in the same way that total depravity is very different from what Calvin taught yes. uh, today because it evolves. So, um, so yeah, I just want to be clear about that in case any listeners are huge into Marcin and we're like, wait, we aren't, we aren't Marcinites. Uh, no, no, of course. Yes. Thank you. I'm just, yeah. So, so what do you think, George? Um, do you think, um, how do I want to say, I don't want to ask you a leading question. And the problem is I think I already know some of your answer, but I, I guess maybe just, would you elaborate uh, at all in like what you feel is that which shifts when we, when we hold one of these views over there. Now I realize that, you know, me talking about the trauma piece, this is, this is the first time you've considered the trauma aspect of it, which I think also is interesting in the reading of Cain and Abel, right? Because it's not retributive. Cain kills Abel. God does not kill Cain. That's retributive. Retributive justice says you're to be put to death the same way you killed someone. 
Instead, God addresses the trauma because, right? Because what does Cain say? This is too great of a burden for me to carry. God responds and addresses Cain's trauma. Even in his guilt of murder, God says, I will protect you. I will put a sign on your head. Well, let's. That no one can touch you and harm you. Yeah, which I do want to talk about Cain and Abel before we wrap up today. But to respond to your first question of how this kind of changes, one of the things that I was always taught was, you know, the reason why Jesus came was because God could not be around us in our sin. And Mm. if you hold, yeah, especially if you hold to the idea that the moment that they ate the fig or whatever the fruit was, um, God still shows up and is right there in their sin. And it's like this, this idea that, you know, you must not have unrepentant sin. Well, Adam and Eve have it. God is there, helps them through that and still goes with them. Right. And so like once that whole thing stopped holding water, I had to throw out the bucket and start over. Mm. Because if your theology, or I should say my view is if my theology isn't supported by something that is actually contradicted in the text. And what I mean by that is something as simple as God can't be around you in your sin. And we see that in Adam and Eve. That's why they're kicked out of the garden. Well, if that were the case, God wouldn't have showed up. Yeah. God would have sent a messenger or something. There's clearly more than one of whatever God is talking to around God in chapter three and chapter one. So Mm -hmm. once, once I started putting that together, everything just kind of changed. Yeah. So, so what do you think about a God that be, that encourage, like, how do I want to say a God that, uh, says there are consequences for failure to, uh, for obedience, but that same God that says, but I don't want you to live in shame and guilt. And in fact, I will even address your trauma that living. I also think this is profound, right? That, that living counter to the way that God would have us live a, a necessary, maybe necessary is the wrong word, um, a, a consequence of that, a, a natural consequence of that is shame and guilt and trauma. And that God, God doesn't want us to be traumatized. And so God has given us this law, this way of thinking about the world and treating others in order to minimize our trauma, to, in order to minimize our guilt and shame. And that when we live counter to what God has called us to live, God not only says, well, there are consequences, but then God addresses our trauma. That, my friend, is mercy. Wow. Talk about amazing. Well, what I love about that whole scene is that that is the picture of what judgment should be. Mm. So, like, even though we removed the ability for God to teach judgment correctly. And I, the thing, something that Christians love to say is only God can judge me or this, you sound like you're being a judge. Well, you know, 
that's what we do. That is literally what we do. We are to, how, how can you find that mercy or justice is not being brought? Well, you provide a judgment. Right. And that's what God is doing. God is being merciful and, you know, in some way, like bringing justice to the situation. And yeah. it's, it's the, like you were saying, it's the template for how we view God, but not just how we view God, but how God is setting God's self up to be with God's people. Yeah. I mean, God could have left them in the leaves. Yeah. God could have let right. them eat from uh, the tree of life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, God. the reason to bring up the leaves is because I just think that that's, that's such an example to me of how God has worked in my life, right? That I cover up uh, because of something that I feel ashamed of. So I cover up and that in some way, this is where I think maybe a healthier view of the Romans passage that everyone likes to say that God works out all things for good. Um, that, that God, God, God took their trauma, their shame, and the way that they tried to address it, which again was not a healthy judgment, right? Yeah. Like they clothed themselves in figs and that wasn't enough. And God said, let me show you how I would clothe you. And God closed them in a way that, you know, reduces that shame, trauma and guilt. And I just, uh, well, and it provides warmth too. Yeah. I'm everything. Right? Like, protection from the elements, whatever it might be. I, not that they needed it prior to this moment, but who knows, right? Yeah. So um, do you want to, I, I mean, I think that that's pretty good on, on chapter three in, in this subject. I don't want to, you know, rehash stuff that we've talked about in previous episodes, but I do want to touch on Cain and Abel and okay. the first human born in the image of Adam, which is Seth. Uh, yeah, that's not till the next portion that, though that's chapter four. Oh, you're right it's in five yeah yeah i'm sorry that's okay all right so um you started <laughs> you brought up um cain killing abel yeah mm -hmm. god protecting a murderer yeah let's talk about that a little bit um so adam and eve leave the garden they set up shop and eve gives birth to cain and then later on uh, Abel shows up, Cain worked the fields, Abel kept the flocks, and they provided um, uh, offerings to God. Yeah. Real quick, as a quick aside that will add a wrinkle to a lot of people's brain, there's a lot of tradition that says that Cain is the son of Eve and the serpent. What? Yeah. Yeah, and there's even a New Testament reference that uh, that talks about uh, Canaan being a descendant of. I believe it. I think it names Cain specifically being a descendant of the devil. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Let's talk about that. I've never heard that. Yeah, there's uh, traditions around that. A great book if you're interested in uh, in in looking at like ancient traditions around uh, Torah uh, and the different stories that you know we've. We've turned Torah into just being good for Sunday school stories. Um, it's not. It is not. I remember when I was. No. It's, it's like the way we do fairy tales and we, we forget that, you know, Hansel and Gretel are like chopped up. Isn't it Hansel and Gretel that are chopped up? 
I think so. Or something. Yeah, it, like yeah, and we we uh, we neuter our fairy tales either even to make them appropriate to tell our children. <clears throat> but um, yeah, so there's uh, but anyhow, the book is called uh, the uh, the Bible the way it was. It's by uh, uh, Kugel, K U G E L. Um, oh my goodness, the name's escaping me. Okay, well we'll put it in the show notes. So okay, I. My copy is sitting downstairs and I'm up in my office. But anyhow, there's a tradition that uh, Cain was actually born while they were still in the garden, right? Because otherwise, how would Eve know uh, what increased pain in childbirth meant? Um, and also the Hebrew, uh, in the beginning of chapter four, and I can't speak to this as being anything that I personally have seen myself. Uh, but the Hebrew there uh, can be read in such a way that it puts the birth of Cain as a past tense uh, instead of now, right? Uh, and shows that Cain was born in the garden, uh, had already been born. So this is an interesting uh, way of reading this passage. Um, and I really, I, you know, let's pause for a second. I want to find that New Testament passage. Okay. Uh, everybody, we're going to go on a break. So when we come back, we'll have the name of it and we'll go from there. And welcome back, everybody. We really hope you enjoyed that break. All right, so Don. Do we have any kind of like waiting room music or anything during that time? There's going to be something. You mean there was something? There, Yes, there totally was something. Got it. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, the New Testament passage you were talking about is 1 John 3.12, which yeah. reads, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. So now I realize you can read that and not make an assumption that he was born of uh, the serpent. But I will tell you that uh, that was a prevalent idea in first century, that Cain was born of the... Now, whether it was a majority view or not, it was around, right? Um, and people had heard it. So you can read that and I guess depending on your view, you would have heard it uh, a certain way. So, uh, and I don't have the Greek in front of me right now to really dig in and look at the belonged or anything. Uh, so I wasn't anticipating my off the cuff comment was gonna lead us down uh, this road. So I wasn't prepared to talk about that too much. But. Okay, well, I mean, if we ever have a Patreon set up, that'll be a, a Patreon exclusive. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so, um, but in uh, chapter four, what we see is uh, Cain kills Abel because God enjoys or accepts Cain's or Abel's offering more. Um, yeah. And then he just murders him in cold blood. Hey, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked, or uh, yeah, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Yes. And God shows up and is like, hey, where's your brother? Oh, yeah. my, my brother's keeper, you know? Right. 
So it's interesting, uh, another interesting tidbit, if you will, not tidbits, those are different. Um, dad jokes, sorry, I'm fooling. Um, uh, I was going to make some pun on donut, but that's okay. It's all right. It, it was filled with holes, so I didn't want to. Oh, my Lord. All right. Anyway. But uh, so many of us have heard the uh, the verse that talks about uh, that uh, sin will crouch at your door. Um, and, you know, do you know what I'm talking about here in uh, in four? Let's see. Uh, let's see. Uh, verse seven. Surely if you do right, there is uplift. But if you do not do right, sin crouches at the door. Its urge is towards you, yet you can master it. So that's a, a relatively common uh, understanding. If you read the Septuagint, let me look here at my wall and see if I have my Septuagint handy. Um, I don't. But if you read the Septuagint, uh, it actually drops that uh, uh, anthropomorphizing of sin and doesn't even list sin crouching at your door. Instead, of, it does an interpretation of that. And it says, uh, you know, uh, you brought wisely but divided uh, poorly. So he brought an offering but he chose the wrong portions of the offering, right? So if you read the section, it says that Cain brought an offering from his harvest. Mm -hmm. But then if you read Abel's description, description what Abel brought says, uh, so in verse three, it says, in the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the soil. Sounds good. And it says, and Abel for his part brought the choicest of the firstlings of his flock. So uh, Abel brought the very best to offer God. And I think a lot of Christians have heard this differentiation between the two, um, but Cain just brought from his offering or from his harvest, Yeah. right? And he becomes angry because the younger brother has found more favor in the eyes of God. This is our first story in the Bible where the younger brother gains uh, more favor than the older brother in some way. And the older brother becomes pissed off, right? Yeah. Uh, we see it in the Joseph story, right? Um, because how does God comfort? We, we, we see it in Jacob and Esau. Well, here's the thing, though. Particularly in the Joseph story, the reason I bring that one up specifically is uh, because of what God says to Cain um uh let's see here uh and the lord said to cain why are you distressed and why is your face fallen surely if you do right there is uplift but if you do not do right sin crouches at the door it's urges towards you yet you can master it uh cain said to his brother abel oh where is it i'm i'm missing the section uh where God basically says to Cain that your brother will still is still subservient to you, right? That your brother is still, uh, uh, and maybe this is from the Septuagint, which would be interesting, um, but that 
you're still the older brother, basically. But that's not good enough. And Cain becomes angry and takes Abel out to eliminate his competition. Yeah, I think that that's in the Septuagint. Uh, yeah, um, it probably is. Okay, so, uh, but anyhow, uh, so in the Septuagint then, uh, and maybe we can find that quote and put it in the show notes as well. Um, so this picture, I would argue, at least in the way the rabbis or the sages interpreted the Septuagint, was that, you know, you're still the older brother, right? You messed up. You brought, you didn't bring a good enough offering, but you're still the older brother. You're still the firstborn. Everything's still good. Uh, and which, again, I think is like a trauma response, right? God's trying to de-escalate the situation. And but Cain takes Abel out and uh, into the field and kills him. Yeah. So where do you want to go from there, George? Well, so it's uh, what I want to talk about is God's response to that. Mm. Well, first of all, the Hebrew there says that Abel's bloods, plural, cries out to God. Um, and I think that that's really interesting. And so in rabbinic literature, it says it was all the descendants of, of Abel that would not come to be uh, cried out to God. And this is why to murder someone is, to, is uh, it, to kill someone is the same as destroying an entire world because all the descendants that would have been will now no longer be. Um, and so it says the bloods cried out to God. Um, so I think that that's a really interesting picture here in the Cain and Abel story. So, yeah. So what, what do you, what do you want to know about God's response? Well, it's not what I want to know. It's, it's, you've already touched on it earlier. Um, when you were asking the question of how my reading of three has changed, it's how God continues to protect Cain after he kills his brother. Yeah. I mean, he goes on and has descendants. He marries. Uh, you know, it seems as though in some way he was restored. Um, you know, he always has this mark that reminds him of what he had done. But it also reminds him that God will continue to protect him. That God will continue to uh, be by uh, his side. Which is really... You know, I, I, man, my, my personal emotions, and this is where maybe, you know, I ate from the tree too early, so to speak, is that, you know, I'm like, man, I, I feel really uncomfortable about this, that, you know, King murders his brother and God's like, okay, uh, that sucked. You shouldn't have done it. Um, you know, now he does punish Cain and makes, says that the earth will no longer bring forth food for him and no longer sustain him. Uh, and yeah. that, leaves, that leaves Cain as nomadic. Uh, but, God, but God still protects Cain. He, he deals with the trauma. When Cain is like, this is too much for me to bear, God says, okay, well, here's what I'll do to make it bearable. Here's how I will address this. Um, it's, it's super powerful. Yeah. The... Um... <clears throat> One of the things that always kind of jumps out to me in this uh, is when, you know, 
Cain is responding to God's um, punishment is when God says to him that uh, anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over, which it, the whole seven times over or seven times seven times 70 is such a theme in, in the text. And this is the first time that we see it. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those things that kind of stands out to me that, you know, the, the repercussion of, well, first of all, I just love the fact that, you know, there are more people around and that's something that we never talk about. Um, yeah. Which I always kind of find interesting, especially if you hold a literal view of, of the text. Um, right. But at the same time, well, never mind. I don't want to get into that because we don't have the time for that. But uh, I don't know. I just, that's something that just always kind of jumps out to me is um, these, obviously it's the first book of the, of the text. So it's going to be setting up themes and um, what we can expect from, from people in it, but how God responds to it and just how protective God is over God's creation. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, there are places in which God, like the earth spits out things that are harmful to it and the earth swallows up things that are harmful. And, you know, uh, at least according to the text that, uh, yeah. So you did mention, and I, I, I think it's worth touching on real briefly before we wrap up our, our return episode, um, is that in verse 26 of chapter four, it says, and to Seth, in turn, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, meaning God has provided me with another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain had killed him. Now, it's interesting because Seth uh, is, let's uh, read verse 5, or chapter 5, it says, Uh, This is the record of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, right? That's how chapter five begins, that God created them in the likeness of God. Uh, And it says, uh, when Adam had lived 130 years, this is verse three, he had a son in his likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. So something here has changed, right? Uh, Cain and Abel, as far as we know, were image of God. But Seth is the first one born that is in the image of Adam. Yeah. I think this is really a fascinating statement uh, and has some interesting potential implications for the way we read the next sections of the text. Go on. No, that's a cliffhanger, right? Oh, fine. Yeah, that's a cliffhanger. All right. So um, we really hope that you all have enjoyed this comeback episode. Um, as much as we've enjoyed, like, finally getting yeah. back to recording. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, so uh, we're going to be going over, like we said at the beginning of the episode, um, Torah portions for the foreseeable future. Um, if there's anything that you want us to talk about or have any suggestions, we're always open to them. We'd also love feedback on whether you like us doing these portions readings. Yeah. Um, because if that's something that our, you know, our listeners are actually really interested in, 
it doesn't have to be just a temporary thing. We could do this for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And I think something um, that I want to point out here is, you know, whether we talk about a topic or um, we're talking about the text, we're going to not try and wrap everything up in a nice bow for you. Because oh, once, thank God. Yeah, because, um, you know, some of the feedback I've heard is we definitely need to work on our closer. And I completely agree. But something that's important for, and to speak for Don for a brief moment, is for us is that you continue to learn and think about this and continue the conversation after the episode's over with. So if we are wrapping it up in a bow and saying, hey, this is what it looks like, or to make everything nice and tidy, it's almost a disservice to you. And it's disingenuous from us because we're not bow wrappers. Yeah, it's, that is a constant point of contention around Christmas time in my house. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, so that's just something that we're not going to do. Yeah. But uh, that being said, I have been your co-host, George. I've been your co-host, Don. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.